Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Elliot Ness and the American Demon. Almost sounds like a Nancy Drew mystery. I wish the story were that benign. In the mid-1930s, just after Prohibition ended, Cleveland played host to a killer whose grisly murders rivaled that of London's Jack the Ripper. The victims were all beheaded, and often their limbs were also removed, earning the sadist the moniker Torso Killer. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author Daniel Stashauer, who's here to share the story of Elliot Ness and the hunt for America's Jack the Ripper. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Gret. Great to be here. So, so Dan, tell us a little bit about uh, about your background uh, as an author and how you came to this project. Sure. Uh, well, I grew up in Cleveland, uh, so um, you know, I imagine, if you will, I'm eight years old, eight or nine years old, and I'm on a camping trip uh, with a scouting group. We're around a campfire and we're toasting s'mores, and the counselor begins to tell us uh, this ghost story, as is the tradition. Uh, and it's a story about how um, long ago in Cleveland, my hometown, uh, there was this terrible series of murders carried out. And I remember uh, at one point we had to stop him to have him explain what the word decapitation meant. And uh, he kept repeating the words, the story is true, and the killer was never caught over and over again. Now, you know, we're a group of kids uh, on a scouting trip. We all then went into our, uh, into our tents, and I don't think anybody slept at all um, uh, that night. But it certainly planted a bug in my ear uh, about about this case about this series of crimes that came to be known as the the, the uh, under the general heading of kingsbury run which was the geographical area um where these crimes took place and the connection again the case itself is again and there's been several of these cases around the world uh jack the ripper torso murders i know there have been several of these things where it becomes uh, the head gets chopped off, sometimes the arms or maybe just the legs. So they find the torso, sometimes they find the head. And so even just figuring out who the victim is, unless someone comes forward and says, I, you know, where's my wife? And, you know, she has a tattoo or something. It takes time, especially, again, these happened in the uh, 30s. Yes. I, and I should probably say it's, it's the mid-1930s during the worst years of the Great Depression. And unfolding here in Cleveland, Ohio, is this string of brutal killings. They're horrible and seemingly without precedent. And each of the victims appeared to have been beheaded. 
some, it appeared, while, while still alive. And the remains, in most cases, were painstakingly dismembered and scattered across the city. So the horror was everywhere. A pair of schoolboys would stumble over a headless torso, or a severed limb would be seen floating in the river, or a skull would appear in a tin can at the city dump. And each atrocity, as you would imagine, touched off a cycle of fear and outrage and calls for action in the newspapers. And the headlines read things like, the mad butcher strikes again. And who is this mad torso killer? One reporter called him that almost unknown creature, a master criminal. And he said, it can be argued powerfully that he was the greatest murderer of all time. Now, of course, uh, there is point out in your book and another one that I was reading recently about something else, another uh, person killing multiple people. Serial killer was not a term yet. And I forget. I know it's in one of my podcasts who claims to have coined it uh, in the 70s or whatever it was. It was a serial killer. Now, this would be it's an interesting case all by itself. And, uh, you know, how the, the police move forward. And again, we're not going to give it away. What's uh, you know? What's it solved? We'll get to that. Uh, but you just think it's a, okay. But here's the twist: uh, most of us, and I grew up. Uh, you're a little younger than me, there. I think youngster. But I grew up on the Untouchables. I loved Robert Stack. Uh, there was nothing better than watching the Untouchables. Tell my audience a little bit about first about Elliot Ness in general if anyone doesn't know who he is and then how he fits in this story i don't get it well it's really remarkable and in many ways elliot ness is exactly what you think he was he's a hero he's a man of great integrity and bravery but he's more than the tough guy that we know from tv and the movies elliot ness rose to fame during the prohibition years as the man who got al capone He's remembered today as the leader of the Untouchables. This was a legendary team of prohibition agents. Now, you mentioned that, that tremendous uh, black and white TV series starring Robert Stack, but a lot of other people uh, will have seen the movie with Kevin Costner and Robert De Niro as Capone. But when people think of Ness, they usually think of a big truck smashing through the doors of an illegal brewery. you would think that but the real real elliot ness he was more than that uh he was uh also a very forward-thinking reformer and yes he was astonishingly brave and some of his exploits were spectacular but on screen and particularly in that great old untouchables series he solves his problems with violence and in real life 
he rarely even carried a gun. In fact, he once told a friend that he didn't need it. The empty holster was enough. And he brought off some of his bravest moments that way with an empty holster. The first part of the book, it's, I mean, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, the book, American Demon, I'll keep pushing it through the thing. You got to get it. Um, and the first part is great because you have to lay this down about him. And especially people didn't know that he had a career after this, again, based on movies and whatever. We figured either I would have said before reading this, he died, uh, you know, shortly after he was either killed or retired. And, and that was the end of that. Um, the sad part about it, too, is, you know, we talk about how invested the government was in revenues and all that and then what like it was two years three years you know a constitutional amendment <laughs> two of them one to say you can't drink and the other to say okay it's all right now um i'll just ask you it might be in the book did did he then continue on with like obviously they were still illegal um manufacturing to 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 uh, circumvent taxes i'm guessing so it didn't end with oh now you can come out of the woodwork and everyone can drink and so the so the the hood said well we'll have to find something else which of course they did but i'm assuming there was a a, a period where did he stay with that and try to break up illegal manufacturing even though drinking was okay or did he he did for, for for quite some time, you know, we think of, as you mentioned, we think of Ness as a Chicago guy, because that's where all the drama with Al Capone and the Untouchables played out. But as you mentioned, that chapter of his career was fairly brief, and it was pretty much all wrapped up by the time he turned 30, particularly with the repeal of Prohibition. So uh, what does he do for a second act? Uh, he moved to Cleveland. And why not, I say, why not? He landed a job as the director of public safety. And this was a position, it put him in charge of the entire police department and the fire department and a whole lot more. This was a big, big promotion. So big, in fact, that a lot of people assumed he would fall flat on his face. In Chicago, he'd been in charge of a handful of guys. Now, He's in charge of thousands of city employees in one of America's biggest cities. And what's more, he's the youngest person ever to hold the position. He's going to have a real struggle to live up to his own reputation, sort of to, to fill his own shoes. And his marching orders are all but impossible. The mayor has brought him on board to clean up a police department that was basically rotting from the inside out because of corruption. Also, by the way, to break the stronghold that the mob had over the city. And at that time, Cleveland was very nearly as mobbed up as Chicago was. So, so no big deal. Clean up the police force, take down the mob. And the wonder of it all is the, the tremendous amount of success that he had in doing this. One of, one of his reporters said that his timing was terrific. The city had seldom needed a hero so badly. So day after day after day, you see Elliot Ness on the front pages of the paper. He's, he's, he's uh, breaking up a gambling ring. He's kicking down doors. He's uh, uh, shutting down illicit um, um, uh, breweries still, and he's clamping down on corruption. Uh, yeah. And he was, he was the hero the city needed and didn't know it wanted but he but i'm sure he made a lot of enemies obviously 
Oh, absolutely. By doing sure. that, you know, the corrupt cops or the, the people who were being protected by the cops or, you know, but all of it. Absolutely. There was this entrenched network of, uh, of um, bribes, payoffs, this, and that, that kept the city running. And it was Ness's uh, um, genius uh, to figure out a way to disrupt those net those networks uh those broads and, and one way he did it was to shift police officers around uh so that they were no longer moving in their well-worn uh, tracks and he also managed to identify and route uh corrupt precinct captains a process that he likened to cutting the head off a snake uh if if corruption was proceeding you know from the top down and he removed the guys in charge uh um, that that was a pretty good start. There were a lot of police officers on the force who um, had issues with this shiny young guy who had never worn the uniform uh, and somehow had the stones to go after men who'd been in their positions for 20, 25, 30 years. But he won them over in the end, or at least they saw that he wasn't going to be deterred. Cleveland at that time, depending on who you ask, was the sixth or seventh largest city in the United States. And there were a lot of reasons for that. But one was that it was a point at which a lot of uh, uh, travel hubs converged, uh, which made it a big, important city, but also uh, created opportunities during pro the Prohibition years for bootlegging in much the same way that they had in Chicago. From the moment that he, you know, accepts this position or takes this position, had any, uh, can they d determine whether any of the murders happened before that or did it happen, start on his watch? Uh, the murders began uh, began um, before uh, Ness arrived on the scene and they continued on his watch. And it was a while before the police realized that they were dealing with a series of connected crimes. Uh and uh, um, part of that was to do with the fact that the killer appeared to be preying on homeless, the homeless indigent population in a phrase that was uh, repeated over and over at the time. The killer was preying on people who would not be missed. But at a certain point, um, uh, a set of remains was discovered fairly close to a spot where uh, two other bodies had been discovered a few months earlier. And the scale of the thing just snapped into focus. And the police realized that they were that they were dealing with one murderer. And that's when the investigation really kicked into high gear. Well, and, and, you know, uh, you don't have to be um, a humanitarian uh, to say, you know, I don't want anybody butchered. I don't want anybody murdered. They just cut that guy in, uh, was it L.A., that was shooting homeless people. Um, so, no, you don't want that. But I'm sure if you're, uh, you know, a citizen and you're walking around, you're thinking, well, maybe he'll switch M.O. and, and come after non-people, non-homeless. No, you're, you're exactly right. It, it, it was It was never that uh, uh, um, these th these victims were considered um, uh, uh, dis dispensable. It was just that it took the police a while to, to cotton on to the fact that that there was a connected series um, series of crimes here. 
Cleveland at that time, well, then is now, uh, really, was known for its outreach uh, to these populations, that, that uh, the, the people of Cleveland uh, did their best to provide for people who were down on their luck. And a lot of people were, were, uh, were drawn to the city um, for that reason. And it created a, uh, 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 a population that was centered around this uh, gloomy thread of land in the middle of the town called uh, Kingsbury Run. Um, this was an ancient dried up riverbed that ran through the city. And during the depression years, it had become a focus of homeless encampments and shanty towns. And uh, people would come from all over and converge on this area. And uh, one journalist wrote, if you enjoy feeling your flesh creep, just take a midnight tour through Kingsbury Run. Bum, bum, bum. Um, sorry, my sound effects guy is off today. And one of uh, Elliot Ness, one of his tactics uh, was to just uh, clear out uh, the tent city and hoping that would sort of fix the problem. It, it really didn't, did it? It was a tactic that uh, that Ness uh, tried to put into place during the, uh, the later stages uh, of the crisis, and it didn't go well um uh for him uh the there was um a, a general belief that he had he had gone too far and uh that that um that however well-intentioned it it may have been that he was going at it backwards something that impressed me over and over again as i was uh, working on this story was how hard the cleveland police and particularly the detective force worked to push through the limits of the technology at the time, and also the assumptions uh, that that were ingrained into police work at the time. At one stage, uh, the city coroner convened what was informally called a torso clinic. He brought together a group of experts, uh, each of whom could look at the problem from a different point of view and put forward ideas about what they were dealing with and how to go about uh, tracking the killer down. And they, there were uh, medical experts, um, psychologists, psychiatrists, police experts, criminologists of every, of every stripe, and they all came together and they produced what they called a synthetic portrait of the killer. Now, today, of course, you and I would instantly recognize that as criminal profiling. Uh, that was that was a technique that really hadn't come into to use at the time. But here was this group of people attacking the problem, just throwing everything they had at it. And a, another example that always that, that really struck me uh, was there was a particular suspect at one stage uh, that they were looking for, and they didn't have a recent photograph of the guy. All they had was a photograph taken from when he was uh, was very young. So what they did was they brought in a police artist. They, they projected this image onto a canvas and using descriptions uh, from, uh, from people who knew the suspect, this artist embellished, changed, and uh, aged up this, this image on the canvas so that it more closely approximated the appearance of the guy in the present day. Now, again, today, we, we would recognize that as age progression software but in the 1930s 
there, there was no such thing as software. No. Uh, so so uh, it just again and again and again, you see the police really, really putting their uh, shoulders to the door, trying to burst through uh, the, the, the barriers that were that were put in their way and and they and use everything they had to try to track this guy down. Now, did uh, again, they're homeless, but sometimes it's, you know, it, well, back then, alcohol, probably not Oxycontin. But so people might have known, gee, that was my father. He went off the deep end or whatever. Did, uh, did they start getting tips and start getting people saying, you know, I haven't seen my cousin in 10 years? Or did they get, uh, you know, a flood of that, which we would get today, especially with the Internet and cell phones or whatever? Did they get help from the community? They did, and they were open to it. Uh, there were there were uh, tip lines. Uh, there were people who who sorted through all these um, uh, uh, tips and um, uh, suggestions from the public. Some of which were were helpful. Some were not. Uh, there was a great deal of of difficulty uh, in identifying um, the remains in most cases, and they tried some extraordinary things. There was one victim who had just this incredibly impressive array of tattoos on his arms and legs. And they, they, they noted, they called him and his torso. I mean, it's just everywhere. The guy was covered with tattoos. And at the outset, you know, you gotta be thinking, well, this, this can't, this isn't going to be that hard. You know, surely a guy with uh, this, uh, I forget how, exactly how many, but it was, it was no fewer than eight or nine tattoos all over him uh, was, it's probably going to be a guy who stood out. There was going to be somebody who who recognized um, this this pattern of tattoos. They made inquiries far and wide in tattoo parlors uh, from coast to coast. Never managed to identify uh, the guy. There was another case where the severed head of a victim uh, was displayed to people who cared to view it in the city morgue. And they had a long line of people solemnly filing past uh, a gurney where this head of the unfortunate victim was displayed hoping that someone would recognize him uh, there was really no, they left no stone unturned to to uh to resort to cliche but they really they really did throw everything they had at it and um wasn't there an exhibit of one of the cases at uh, a big exhibition sort of like a world's fair in cleveland um that even fdr was involved with yeah it was the great lakes expo it was modeled on the uh the the, the world's fair uh it was a you know huge um uh, tremendous uh exhibition um uh, with all kinds of different um displays and performances and celebrities uh, visiting and yes fdr did did come to town and did pay a call and if you were of a mind to visit uh the display that the uh that the that the cleveland police had set up you would have seen uh, a death mask taken from one of the victims and again the idea being with all of these people who were filing by maybe somebody would would uh, uh would recognize the features um 
and um, you know my father was at that expo and 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 remembers this, and uh, they they um, never got a yeah you know no nobody ever did step forward. But another thing they were doing was that at that ex uh, that fair was giving people the opportunity to participate in this this very novel process of having their fingerprints taken. A whole lot of people seemed delighted to do it. And uh, the, there again, uh, they were they were doing their best to um, build the tools uh, that they might need in the future. How many deaths do they think, uh, uh, you know, estimate uh, this person, if it was one person or persons, did, did accomplish? It is similar to Jack the Ripper in the sense that it depends how wide you cast the net. You know, in the case of the Ripper, you talk about the canonical victims. Um, here, too, uh, it depends on how you count. Uh, it was certainly no less than a dozen or 13, um, but uh, there was a very, very dedicated um, police officer who believed that the, the field of operation was a lot wider than just the city of Cleveland and that the killer was traveling back and forth by rail uh, between Cleveland and other locations, particularly in Pennsylvania, and also killing people there. And he thought that the death toll had climbed into dozens and dozens. Um, it's uh, Ness didn't happen to think so, but, but a lot of people did. And uh, this officer, again, a man who spent uh, one of his vacations trying to track down leads in Pennsylvania believed that he was getting additional data points that, that would eventually coalesce into uh, capturing capturing the killer. So it's hard to fault his zeal, uh, but the victims in uh, Cleveland, it's, it's a big number, yeah, you know, at least a dozen. And um, so then we're we're coming to when you know all this hard work does sort of pay off, and I uh, again share with the audience. There's like uh, two major two people uh, who sort of become focused independently, and and I forget leapfrogging one over the other. So uh, take us through how they sort of zero in on one, and then there all of a sudden pops up another one. Well, from the beginning, the investigators believed that the killer had knowledge and training that allowed for this apparently surgical precision of the dismemberments that were that had been performed on the victims a doctor or a butcher that was the theory someone with with expertise and soon ness and his team uh found a suspect that they liked for the crime and for a while he was known as dr x he was a doctor who had fallen on hard times. He had a substance abuse problem. He checked a lot of boxes. And Ness's team started tailing this guy around the city. And apparently, the suspect took a weird sort of pleasure in it, as if it were a form of hide-and-seek. There are stories that he even called into police headquarters to taunt them on the poor quality of the surveillance effort. He would say something to the effect of, that guy you had tailing me wasn't very good. If he wants to try again, I'll be at such and such department store tomorrow afternoon. You know, can you imagine? Just, just insane. Well, at one stage, Ness and his men scooped this guy up and grilled him for a long time in a hotel suite. The details are sketchy and contradictory, 
But one of Ness's colleagues said that the interrogation went on for a week or two in eight-hour stretches. But the suspect never cracked, and Ness finally had to let him go. As with Jack the Ripper, people will argue until the end of time over whether this guy was the killer, in the same way that people still debate you know, the grassy knoll. But Ness was alert to the possibility of other suspects. But he seems to have believed that Dr. X was the guy. And then someone else comes along. Yes, uh, a tremendously, uh, tremendously sad chapter of the story um, that a, a county sheriff um, sort of uh, there was a private detective working the case, not not connected to Ness or his department, and a county sheriff um, uh, basically turned him loose on the case and and. Uh, through a complicated series of events they he fastened on this uh this man named frank dolezal and they scooped him up and there was uh, what can only be called a rush to judgment um the the man did confess to one of the crimes um dubbed by the press uh, lady of the lake um as you recount in your book but he soon retracted, recanted the confession in a way that suggested that uh, that undue influence had been brought to bear during the interrogation. And in time, he died in police custody under circumstances that can only be called suspicious. It is a uh, a very uh, a very sad chapter in a saga that was already plenty sad um, on its own merits. Um, today, uh, there's uh, there are very few people who, who uh, believe in any way that this guy had anything to do with the crimes. So, so that leaves us with Doctor X. I'm sorry, he was um, uh, Francis Edward Sweeney. That's right. That's who he, the X hiding under the X. Yes. yes. Um, and was he ever charged? Was he ever uh, arrested? Was he ever tried? None of those things. Uh, and there are all kinds of reasons for that. The received wisdom, uh, has always been that, um, that he had himself committed, uh, to a mental facility and that put him out of reach of the law. But that is an oversimplification of, of what happened. Uh, the, the, it boils down to a lack of anything that would hold up in court. And uh, as the net tightened around this guy, the killings did stop. But um, it's been argued that the killings had already stopped. It depends who you ask. There are all kinds of experts uh, who have looked into this case. Um, there are a lot of different points of view. For the purposes of Elliot Ness's investigation, he could take a satisfaction. He could console himself uh, within the knowledge that the, that the crimes did stop. Of course, everybody wanted to see the killer caught, thrown in jail, 
and, and uh, a decisive end. But uh, I believe for Ness, it was enough that the crimes, it had to be enough that the crimes had stopped. How long after uh, the murder stopped, did, uh, how long was Elliot Ness still a uh, public safety officer in Cleveland? Uh, he stayed in the job a lot longer than most people did. It was a political appointment, and he managed to survive uh, um, a couple of changes of administration before he eventually um, segued into uh, wartime uh, work and uh, uh, resigned his position as a uh, as safety director when the war was over uh ness decided that he would go into business uh which um didn't go particularly well one of his friends described it as a checkerboard that defies analysis uh he he didn't really have uh have much of a head for business but he was always uh well-intentioned hard-working and at one point, he ran for mayor of the city of Cleveland. While he had been safety director, there were a lot of people pushing him to go after that job. And had he run while he was safety director and on the front pages, he likely would have sailed into, into the job. But he always said, I have a job. Uh, I'm, I, I want to continue with the, with the job I, uh, I have. And by the time he ran um, for mayor, his moment had passed, and he was pretty soundly defeated. You came into it, I, I think, as we talked in the beginning, on the crime. The crime interested you. At that point, when you started looking at the crime, did you know of Ness being involved in it, or that sort of came to a, a surprise for you, as it came a surprise to me? Uh, I certainly knew Ness had been um, Ness had been involved in it, uh, and when you grow up in Cleveland. You, you do hear about this case. And, and uh, you know, as I was growing up, I was always told that, uh, that Elliot Ness had lived in Cleveland, had worked in Cleveland. Uh, his son had gone to my junior high school, uh, not at the, not at the same time, but there were, there were sort of, uh, he, he'd left his mark on the city. People were aware uh, that he'd been, that he'd been there. Uh, but it wasn't really until I started looking through um, his scrapbooks and family papers, which are in Cleveland at the Western Reserve Historical Society, um, that it really came into focus. Um, uh, and I, I should probably mention, uh, you know, as you would expect, uh, there were a lot of familiar faces in Ness's scrapbooks. You're seeing Capone and other gang gangsters and some of the era's shining lights, you know, FDR and John D. Rockefeller and J. Edgar Hoover. And I'm paging through these scrapbooks and suddenly uh, a familiar face jumps out at me and it's my grandfather, uh, Fred Stashower. And I thought, well, this has got to be a mistake. Uh, I would love to be able to tell you that my grandfather was a bootlegger or a bank robber. Uh, but it turns out that Ness and my grandfather crossed paths at least once a year at a political roast, you know, something like the, uh, the uh, gridiron club or the, or a comedy central roast. Uh, my grandfather, I came to find out was a cast member, uh, for many years and Ness was one of their frequent targets. And apparently Ness took it 
very much in stride. He pasted a caricature of himself, uh, a caricature of the players, which included my grandfather, uh, into a scrapbook and also a photo of himself from the audience, sort of with a hand pressed to his forehead, uh, laughing in appreciation of the joke. Now, I knew my grandfather for 34 years, uh, long after the Untouchables TV series and even the, the Kevin Costner movie, and he never mentioned this. Uh, but it was nice to find out through these scrapbooks that uh, that Ness could laugh at himself in this way. You know, he, he may have been untouchable, but he could take a joke. So let's talk a little about, again, share with my audience. Um, uh, are you working on a current book right now? And also list some books that are out there. Uh, I've written a biography of Arthur Conan Doyle, um, the creator of Sherlock Holmes. I, I love Arthur Conan Doyle. And he had a very eventful life of course sherlock and believe me i'm not trying to take anything away from sherlock holmes i was a kid who loved those stories went around wearing a deerstalker hat and i i to this day you know i absolutely love sherlock holmes and i'm a baker street irregular but uh conan doyle had this very eventful life and he wrote a tremendous number of other things apart uh from sherlock holmes and uh um it was my hope to to sort of step away from the bright lights of Baker Street for a few moments and uh, throw a spotlight on some of these other things um, that he'd done. Tremendously fascinating man and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful career. Now, I read, again, you know, competing books, but one of the books that I read and did uh, uh, a podcast on was called uh, Conan Doyle for the Defense. I don't know. Oh, Marguerite Fox, terrific book. Yeah, absolutely great. great oh my God! Great. I mean, but that's know? the that, that's the thing, and 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 uh, Marguerite Fox's book uh, book illustrates this uh, beautifully. Uh, there are just so many facets to Conan Doyle's uh, career. Um, that was only one of the true crime cases that uh, that Conan Doyle tackled um, in his lifetime, and he just wrote all kinds of things. Uh, he wrote for the stage. He wrote science fiction. He wrote a, um, a history of the Boer War and then a multi-volume history of uh, the Great War, World War World War One, uh, and uh, so many short stories and uh, medical stories. You know, he began his career as a medical doctor. Just endlessly fascinating. And that my book came out um, nearly twenty-five years ago now and still i learn new things about conan doyle all the time so what what do you have a little newer than that aside from this aside from uh american well uh my book prior to this one was called uh the hour of peril and it was about the 1861 uh attempt to assassinate lincoln while he was president-elect on his way from his home in springfield to Washington, D.C. for his first inauguration, and how the plot was detected and thwarted by Alan Pinkerton of the Pinkerton Detective Agency. That was uh, just a tremendously uh, uh, fascinating story to work on. Well, you're in D.C. Uh, I'm assuming a lot of the a lot of archival stuff is is available in D.C. The, DC the Library of Congress is uh, just a fantastic resource, and I spend a lot of time spend a lot of time there. So how about uh, so how do people get in touch with you? Uh, my Facebook page is Daniel Stashauer, and uh, I I um, 
I can be reached, uh, I can be reached there and through, um, my publisher's website, uh, Macmillan Minotaur. Now, again, I want to just mention to my listeners, the book is American Demon with a subtitle, Elliot Ness and the Hunt for America's Jack the Ripper. The author is Edgar Award-winning and bestseller off the New York Times, Daniel Stashauer. You can get it at, I got mine at my local library. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. You get it at Amazon, I'm sure. And uh, there's probably, I'm sure, uh, a Kindle book of it, but I like to have it in my hands. So again, once again, I want to thank you, Daniel. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. So I'd like to thank you folks for kindly tuning in for another episode of Murder Most Foul. If you liked what you heard, I hope you'll tell your friends. Information about the podcast and an email link that can get a message to me can be found at the podcast's website. The address being www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. So until we meet again, Stay safe, and for God's sakes, don't murder anyone. <laughs>